Well, let me encourage you to uh, open the Bible at uh, Jonah chapter 3, page 928, just to remind you of where it is, because it's clustered in the middle of, of other shorter books, not always the easiest one to find. So, page 928, we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 3. You've been working through this book, I understand, and we come to this particular part today. Let's pray together as we come to the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we bow together humbly in your presence. May your written word be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our chief concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now you'll see at the beginning of the third chapter of the book of Jonah, it tells us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, telling him to go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And this time, unlike the first time, Jonah, we're told, obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. And verse 4, we read, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. It was a truly remarkable response. And what happened in Nineveh, this great pagan city which was so notorious in the ancient world for its wickedness is quite unique in the record of biblical history. Nothing like it had happened before. And I think it's safe to say nothing like it has happened since. That, of course, is not to say that similar spiritual awakenings have never taken place in other places. They most certainly have. But the response of the people of Nineveh to the preaching of Jonah is still unique. And I want to suggest it's unique for three reasons. First of all, because it is from beginning to end a sovereign work of God. One of the striking things about the book of Jonah, and I wonder if you've noticed this already, is the number of times something happens that you wouldn't expect to happen. Now, we sometimes find that hard to appreciate because we know the whole story. But if you were hearing the story of Jonah being read for the first time or seeing it dramatized on television, you would find yourself constantly surprised by the turn of events. Chapter 1 begins with God's commission to Jonah to go to Nineveh, a commission which Jonah turns down flat. That's a surprise. Because it's an amazingly bold thing for a servant of God to refuse to do what God wants him or her to do. And it's amazingly foolish for a prophet of God to think he can then disappear from God's sight by escaping in a boat. And no one would have expected someone like Jonah to do what he did. Chapter 2 is equally surprising because the sailors, having seen that the wrath of God was following Jonah, threw him into the sea. 
And that seems to be the end of Jonah until God rather neatly catches him in a great fish, carries him to the shore, and coughs him up. And no one expected that, least of all Jonah. But then comes chapter 3, where Jonah goes to Nineveh to do what God had told him to do at the beginning. And when Jonah marches into this great heathen city and announces the judgment of God, surprise upon surprise, there's a great spiritual awakening as the Ninevites repent. No one would have expected that. The surprises, of course, continue in chapter 4 because here you would expect to find Jonah, a transformed man who's rejoicing with God over what has just happened, but instead he's angry with God. And the book ends with a sulky prophet complaining against God, and no one would have expected that. So the story of Jonah is full of exclamation marks. It's a tale of the unexpected, and not least in Nineveh itself, where the repentance of the Ninevites is from beginning to end a sovereign work of God. That, of course, is something that can be said about every saving act of God, including your salvation and mine. But in the case of Nineveh, it is all the more amazing because these people had no spiritual legacy. There was no pre-evangelism. There was no prior knowledge of the Scriptures. There was no church planting. In fact, humanly speaking, there was nothing that would predispose these people to the preaching of Jonah. And so the repentance of Nineveh is unique because the only way you can explain it is in terms of a sovereign work of God. But it's unique, secondly, because of the sheer scale of what took place. When we think of people turning to God and coming to faith in Christ, we tend to think in smallish numbers. A Presbyterian congregation holds an evangelistic outreach in their town, and at the end of it, they know of 20 people who've come to faith and they think that's good. Or go to the other side of the Atlantic in the mid-60s and to the movement known as the Jesus People where it's reckoned that 20,000 young people turned to Christ in one week on the west coast of America. Or go to the Korean Peninsula in 1973 where Billy Graham held his largest crusade ever in the city of Seoul. Over the five days of the mission, 3.2 million people attended, and an estimated 75,000 inquirers made a decision for Christ. And none of that's insignificant because there is joy in heaven even over one sinner who repents. But it's still nowhere near what happened under the ministry of Jonah in Nineveh. Because when Jonah went to Nineveh, he'd scarcely begun to preach when the whole city was spiritually awakened. And the Ninevites believed God from the greatest to the least. And more than 120,000 people turned to the Lord in that great city on account of one man preaching one sermon on one theme. And the sheer scale of what took place in that great city makes the repentance of Nineveh unique. But the third reason that it's unique, I think, is because of the success which accompanied Jonah's preaching. For in the ministry of Jonah in Nineveh, you have an example of someone who was faithful to the message God had given him to proclaim and who was successful. 
And that's a rare combination, even in Scripture. Think, for example, of Noah, who is described by the Apostle Peter as a preacher of righteousness. But do you know how long Noah preached? Noah preached for a hundred years. And he didn't win a single soul apart from his family. Not one person outside of his own family paid any attention to the message that Noah preached that God was going to send a flood as a judgment upon the great wickedness that had become so prevalent in the minds and hearts of those amongst whom he lived. But though Noah was a preacher of righteousness who remained faithful to God in word and deed and did everything God commanded him to do, there was no outward success. None. Or take Jeremiah, that shy, timid, reserved young man whose childhood was spent out in the country in a place called Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin where his father was a priest. But the word of the Lord came to this young man and told him to go to the city of Jerusalem and to bring them a message they would not want to hear. Jeremiah said, not me, Lord. I can't preach. I'm only a child. But the Lord said, no, you go, for I will be with you, and I will put my words into your mouth. And Jeremiah went, and he did what the Lord had commanded. And from the 13th year of King Josiah to the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, 23 years in all, he faithfully brought the word of the Lord to the people of Jerusalem and Judah, but there was no response. Because you can be true to God and faithful to his word, and have no apparent success. But in Nineveh, you have this one man preaching one sermon on one day, and there is an immediate, overwhelming, and extraordinary response to the message that was brought by Jonah to the people of Nineveh concerning the impending judgment of God. Forty days and you are finished. Forty days to change your mind. Men and women of Nineveh, the Lord God of heaven and earth is against you. Change your evil ways, because in 40 days Nineveh will be overturned. And the people of Nineveh responded to the word of the Lord. And in relation to what he'd been sent to do, Jonah's mission was supremely successful. So the repentance of Nineveh is unique then in these three ways. Firstly, because it is from beginning to end a sovereign work of God. Secondly, because of the sheer scale of the spiritual awakening which took place in that great city. And thirdly, because of the unusual success which accompanied the preaching of Jonah. But while the repentance of Nineveh is unique in the biblical record and even rare, as an historical event, it also serves as a powerful example of how an entire community can be changed when the Word of God goes forth with power. And we know from the history of the Christian church that there are times when God chooses to do precisely that. Let let me give you a few examples from within the United Kingdom. In 1736, an Anglican bishop called Joseph Butler wrote his analogy of religion. He was not at all optimistic about the future of Christianity in Britain because the times in which he was living were marked by decadence, unbelief, and irreligious living. And so bleak did Bishop Butler consider the outlook for the Christian faith to be that in the preface to his book, he wrote, 
it has come to be taken for granted that Christianity is not so much a matter for inquiry, but is now at length discovered to be fictitious. Yet two years later, in 1738, there was a young man sitting in the back seat in a little meeting place in Aldersgate Street in London, listening to someone reading Martin Luther's preface to Paul's letter to the Romans. That man's heart was strangely warmed. His name was John Wesley. A year later, another man did an unprecedented thing for an Anglican cleric in that he stepped out of the church and he stood in a mound of earth and he preached to the colliers of Kingswood near Bristol. That man's name was George Whitfield. And under the preaching of Wesley and Whitfield, a flame was ignited and spread with such ferocity that by the end of Bishop Butler's life, the evangelical awakening, as it became known, had so changed the face of British society as to make it unrecognizable. A hundred years later, a similar awakening occurred in a village called Kilsyth, on the outskirts of Glasgow, where a man called William Burns was ministering. He'd written a letter to his friend, Robert Murray McShane, in which he'd said that in his first seven years as a minister of the gospel, he did not know of one solitary instance of a person being converted by his ministry, nor could he point to one individual who seemed to be awakened in any kind of way to seek after God. But all that changed on Tuesday, July the 23rd, 1839. Burns, in recording the events of that day in his diary, writes of a day fixed from all eternity as an era in the history of redemption. He tells of how he'd arranged to have an open-air meeting that day. But much to his disappointment, it was pouring with rain, and the cobble streets of Gulsyth were empty. But as he walked up the village, he was told everyone had gathered in the church. And when he arrived, he discovered a great multitude of people, many of whom had never been in church in their lives. He preached from Psalm 110, verse 3, in which, which in the AV reads, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. And from that meeting, the revival spread. Seven years without any response, and then suddenly God moves upon the whole community. Twenty years later, Edwin Orr wrote of one of Many incidents which took place in my hometown of Coleraine during the revival of 1859 here in this province. He says, on the 7th of June, 1859, an open-air meeting was held on Fair Hill to hear one or two of the converts. So many thousands attended that it was deemed advisable to divide the crowds into separate meetings, each addressed by an evangelical minister of one denomination or another. The people stood motionless until the very last moment when one of the hearers cried in distress, several others likewise became prostrated, bewildering the ministers, who having had no similar experience previously, scarce knew how to help the distressed in soul and body. The clergymen spent all night in spiritual ministrations, and when the sun arose, the following day was spent in like manner. Friends, this is what we call revival. And we stand in need of that today, do we not? Of such a spiritual awakening that changes entire communities? 
But having taken note of the mighty power of God to change an entire community, it's important for us to recognize that Jonah was not sent by God to Nineveh, Nineveh on the understanding that there would be a widespread repentance among its people. And in fact, as you will see in the next chapter, Jonah was somewhat irked by the response there was to his preaching. He would have preferred that the Ninevites hadn't repented and perished. But when God sent him to Nineveh, he simply sent him there as an evangelist, as a herald, as a witness, whose task, you'll see it in verse 2, was simply to proclaim the message I give you. That's all that the servants of God are ever asked to do. We are asked to proclaim the message that God has given us, whether we see revival or not. So let me encourage you to turn for a moment to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's uh, Keep a finger in Jonah. It's in the New Testament, and you'll find it on page 1196. And Paul is writing here as an aged apostle what is probably his last letter to Timothy. But look at what he says in verse 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, <coughs> conceited, lovers of pleasure <clears throat> rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. But, but notice how this unwholesome catalog of human behavior describes the very society Timothy himself was living in. Because in the next sentence, the apostle says, have nothing to do with such people. So the reference here doesn't only apply to a period of time in the future, but to the present environment in which Timothy is living. And it serves, therefore, as a warning to all those who live between the first and second comings of Christ that's the last days in the New Testament, that they will face terrible times. And it will be a continuing feature of the last days that there will be times of decadence in society and declension in the church. And we are seeing that today, are we not? In our generation? What then is Timothy to do in the midst of such terrible times? Well, perhaps the apostle will provide him with some secret weapon to combat this rampant evil. Perhaps he'll suggest a new evangelistic methodology. Perhaps he will introduce them to a new spiritual experience, but he doesn't. Instead, he says, verse 14 of chapter 3, as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of. And what's that? Verse 15, it's the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Why is that the answer? Verse 16, it's because all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And in the light of this, Paul then charges Timothy in verse 2 of chapter 4, in view of Christ's appearing and judgment, to preach the word. And then in verse 5, to do the work of an evangelist. That's what we are to do in these terrible times. We are to preach God's word and we're to proclaim God's gospel. And nothing else must be allowed to take precedence over that in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, as we proclaim that gospel, we may not see the remarkable revival which took place in Nineveh. 
But we can be absolutely sure of this, that there will be no true revival where the true gospel is not being proclaimed. And what the church in our day must learn to do is what God told Jonah to do and what he commands every servant of his to do. That is to proclaim the message he has given us. And in particular, not to shrink back in the preaching of that message from warning men and women that they are in dreadful spiritual danger if they do not repent and believe. Penn Gillette, who was the speaking half of the illusionist duo known as Penn and Teller, is an atheist. But he once said this about evangelism. I've always said I don't respect people who don't evangelize. I don't respect that at all. How much do you have to hate somebody not to evangelize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you. Let's go back then to the preaching of Jonah in chapter 3. Look more closely at the response of the city's inhabitants. And it seems to me there are four stages here. First of all, they believed God. The author and playwright David Lodge relates his experience on the day that President John F. Kennedy was assassinated on the 23rd of November, 1963. He was in a theater watching a performance of a satirical review which he had helped to write. And in one of the sketches, a character was demonstrating his nonchalance during an interview by, by holding a transistor radio to his ear. The actor playing the part always tuned into a live broadcast. And on this particular evening, as he switched on the radio, the announcement came over the airways that President Kennedy had been shot. The actor quickly switched it off, but it was too late because reality had interrupted the comedy. And that's what happened to the Ninevites. It was just another business-as-usual type day, thousands of people stepping through their daily activities as though God didn't exist. And then the radio got turned on. Suddenly the meaningless comedy of their lives was interrupted by the very voice of God himself who through his prophet Jonah made an unexpected announcement. Not of the recent assassination of someone familiar to these listeners, but of the imminent annihilation of the listeners themselves. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And as the word of God came to the inhabitants of Nineveh in the power of the Spirit of God, they knew this was not the voice of a mere man, but this was the very voice of God. We see that in verse 5. The text says, not the Ninevites believed Jonah, but the Ninevites believed God. Secondly, they humbled themselves. Look at verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. His robe... Symbolic of his dignity is exchanged for sackcloth, a dark, thick, uncomfortable, coarse cloth of goat hair. His throne, 
symbolic of his authority, is exchanged for an ash heap. And what the king is doing here is stripping himself of the insignia that designated him as a sovereign. And while his actions may seem rather strange to us, in the ancient world, both of these actions were recognized as expressions of humiliation and as acknowledgments of guilt. And the king of Nineveh, who is so persuaded that Jonah's word is God's word, not only exercises repentance himself, but he institutionalizes this repentance from his ash heap throne, verse 7, by issuing a royal proclamation by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And we know from verse 5, all the people responded from the greatest of them to the least of them. And I take that to be all without exception. And then in addition to the sackcloth and the fasting, verse 8, let everyone call urgently on God. That's to say, ensure your prayers have an insistent, earnest quality about them. Pray with fervor. Pray with persistence. Pray with passion. Because who knows, verse 9, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. They believed God. They humbled themselves. Thirdly, they turned from their sin. Look at what the king says in his decree, verse 8. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. His decree is both general and specific. Let them give up their evil ways. Here he's using a general term, which means any activity that's contrary to the will of God. But he then gets much more particular he adds, and their violence, or as the English Standard Version puts it, and from the violence that is in his hands. And here's a reference which points to the violent treatment of captive peoples for which the Assyrians were particularly notorious. All sin, yes, they're to turn from, but especially the sin. And the king's response suggests that Jonah's preaching extended to rather more than the one sentence that's recorded in verse 4 because the decree reveals the king was well aware not only that God had had his fill of Ninevite sin generally, but that in particular God's patience had come to breaking point with regard to the brutality and the torture and the sheer abuse of human rights that had so characterized the Assyrian Empire. And this was where they especially needed to repent of all sin generally, but more particularly of their flagrant disregard for human life. And we see from this, don't we, that real repentance is much more than feeling sorry. Much, much more. That's why when the Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is repentance unto life? The answer it gives says this, repentance unto life is a saving grace by which a sinner out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it to God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. How much do we know of that? Dr. James Packer puts it this way, repentance, he says, means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And he then adds, as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. You may have heard the story of the little boy who got his hands stuck on an expensive vase 
Parents tried everything to release it. They applied soap suds with no success. They tried cooking oil, but to no avail. Finally, they determined they had no option but to break the vase, precious though it was, in order to free their son's hand, at which point the frightened little boy cried, would it help if I let go of the pound I'm holding? The point is well made. Because what keeps so many people from the kingdom of heaven is a stubborn refusal to let go of their sin. But it was not so in Nineveh. They believed God, they humbled themselves, they turned from their sin, and fourthly, they pleaded for mercy. Look again at the edict from the king in verse 7. In particular, notice its structure. First, there's the authorization by the decree of the king and his nobles. Secondly, there's the salutation, that is, the people to whom it's addressed, man, beast, herd, flock. That's then followed by the exhortation, the decree proper. It's got six specific commands, three negative, three positive. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. That's the first. Do not let them eat. That's the second. Do not let them drink. That's the third. Three negatives. And then three positives. Let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Authorization, salutation, exhortation. But listen now to the justification, to the rationale for this decree. Verse 9, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger, literally from the burning of his nostrils, so that we will not perish. That, I think, may be the most important verse in this chapter. Do you hear it in the king's voice? He doesn't assume anything. He doesn't expect anything. Much less does he demand anything. The king puts himself in a position of total dependence. Dependence upon the sovereign freedom of God to extend his mercy to whoever he pleases. Who knows? God may yet turn and relent and we may not perish. And one of the things you see that is so striking in this book of Jonah is what comes out of the mouths of pagan people. Whether that's the captain and the sailors on the boat or the king and his people in the city. And in this, they actually outdo the covenant people of God in their understanding of his nature and character. Because these pagan Ninevites recognize salvation is God's domain. They understand God is not some kind of blessing machine that promises to pay off when we finally figure out which religious buttons to press. They see that salvation is God's gift to express sovereignly according to his will. That's why the king pleads as he does for mercy. And verse 10 tells us that when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Friends, the call to repentance is nothing less than the call to be a Christian. It's the first word that Jesus uttered when he came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
Jesus also said of his own generation, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. See it? If eternal life is what you want, if the blotting out of your sins is what you desire, if the heart of God is what you hope to please, then what the gospel calls you to this morning is repentance. Repentance. What's your sin this morning? Is it scandalous? Is it severe? Are you holding your breath, hoping against hope it will remain a secret? Is it a problem with alcohol? Is it an addiction to gambling? Is it a problem with lust? Is it a problem with money? Is it a problem with pride? Is it your temper? Whoever you are, God has made it clear that you will be judged for your sin, as will I. Because there's no one righteous not even one. But if you repent of your sin as the Ninevites repented of their sin, and if with both attitude and action you turn away from that sin and stake your dependence totally upon God's mercy in Jesus Christ, He will relent concerning you. He will show you compassion. He will forgive your sins and blot out your transgressions because that is what God is like. As Jonah tells us in the next chapter, he's a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's why he responds favorably to repentance. And not only favorably, but eagerly. So that as Jesus declared in his parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over even one sinner who repents. And today, that person could be you. Let's bow in prayer. as we reflect on Jonah and Nineveh and the repentance of the people.
it seek each of us to apply it personally and individually to our own hearts and lives. God of all grace, you have given me a saviour. May I come to him as my refuge. Build on him as my foundation. Walk in him as my way. Follow him as my guide. Conform to him as my example. Receive his instructions as my prophet. Rely on his intercession as my high priest and obey him as my king. May his shed blood make me more thankful for your mercies, more humble under your correction, more watchful against temptation, more contented in my circumstances, and more useful to others. And grant, O God, that my eyes would be ever fixed upon Jesus, the only Savior, the one mediator, and the friend of sinners. <laughs>